Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on an unseasonably warm late winter day in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is author, comic writer, screenwriter, and blogger Chuck Wendig. Chuck's early career began as a freelance RPG writer for over a decade before he broke into the novel scene with Blackbirds, Blue Blazes, Shotgun Gravy, and the Heartland Trilogy. He was tapped to write the Aftermath Trilogy to kick off the new canon in Disney's Star Wars, bridging the gap between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Chuck is also known for his ranting blog, Terrible Minds. Chuck and I chat extensively about the internet, the early days, the strange sort of celebrity it spawns, and the way it changes constantly under your feet. We also discuss writing long books and the secrecy behind writing Star Wars. Enjoy my conversation with Chuck Wendig. And my notes just say apples question mark. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Apples question mark. That's my the name of my bio, my biography, my memoir. Apples question mark. I mean, there are worse memoir titles. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I'm gonna like do like a really pretentious version of that where I spell out question. Oh. Mark. Oh. To feel like arty, like mm, chef's kiss. Yeah. Man, you're gonna go straight to the New York Times list with that. Finally, it's time. And then, and then a month later, no one will have ever heard of you. Yeah, I know. That's how it is. That's okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll shine bright. I'll go supernova. <laughs> I mean, that that's a thing with like careers, right? Like with writing, it's such a weird thing because you see a lot and, and it's different in different genres. Uh, but sometimes authors will literally shoot to number one and then you just never hear from uh, about them again. Yeah, it's weird. You, you Or you'll hear an author who um, they never get to number one, but they launch with like some seven figure book deal. And then it kind of goes like, bah, 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 and then like no one reads that book. Or at least not enough people, because you need a lot if it's going to be a seven-figure advance. Yeah. And then they disappear because no one will give them any more money. And yeah, like writing can be one of those flash, bang, done, game over, quick ride things. Like a, it, To me, like the the key to it is so much about holding on. Like it's a it's one of those rodeo bulls. And just all you got to do is not die in the mud. <laughs> and that's that's it. That's success in writing. Yeah. And it's, it's funky how you kind of get that. Um, cause publishers are always constantly going for the risk reward. Right. Yeah. And, and so it blows my mind when you do see those seven figure deals for like, I kind of get it when it's for like, you know, a celebrity or whatever. I, I understand they're trying, that's like literally the business model, yeah. but when it's like an unknown, when it's like a new fiction author and stuff like that, I'm always like, wow, that is quite the jump. Yeah. Especially when it's based on like something like they had an essay that a lot of people clicked on or something like something, this species little sort of like. Uh, okay. All right. You're, you're extending a great deal of faith toward uh, the readership to remember that person's name. Yeah. When you first kind of started out kind of getting into novels, cause I know that you had written for a long time doing work for hire and things like that. Yeah. Um, before you became kind of a novelist, 
was your online presence, which was already, I think, if I remember right, reasonably significant for the time. Did you feel like that helped you? It's hard to know what counts as reasonably significant for the time. I had a presence, but I, I don't know. I mean, and every once in a while, something I would do in the writing space would go like semi-viral. I mean, by numbers these days, it was nothing. But, you know, that was the proto-internet for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had something there. It was weird. Like when I first, because I started blogging, I started TerribleMinds.com. It's now old enough to drink. Like that's how old my website is. So oh, uh, it was like a static HTML page. There was nothing to it except me coding in, you know, random rants about me being angry at myself about writing or whatever it was like trying to be funny and snarky, but like, it was really just for me. And I assumed I was talking to me and maybe like my roommate who designed the website. That's kind of what I assumed. And then a friend of mine at the time, I was, like you said, I did work for hire. So I did a lot of um, uh, game design work and uh, game fiction writing um, uh, for like 10 years. And so a friend of mine, Will Hindmarch, uh, was like, why don't you do like WordPress? Why don't you get like a real big boy website instead of this weird (laughs) CML thing you have? And I was like, oh, that sounds smart. So, okay. So he helped me install it. And then it was like, I turned on, you know, like I blogged and then I had metrics, which I had never had before. And it was like turning on the light in your room and finding out you're not alone. It was like, it just sounds awesome, but it's terrifying. And I'm like, oh, people have been reading me the whole time. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. So I I think I have to do this officially now. So it was weird. Right. It it was kind of like a start of like, uh, you know, you'd you'd kind of hoped that, oh, maybe there's a few people that enjoy me blogging every day. And then suddenly... Oh, that's more than a few people, and they're all strangers. Yeah, yeah. So maybe like fifty comments. I'm like, hey, great, you're, you, you know, you got this real website. I'm like, oh, hello, I, who, who are you? I don't know you. That was the weird part. It was people I didn't know. I had never heard of. I had never met them. They were just randos on the internet who knew who I was, and I didn't know who they were. So it was a very uh, eye-opening experience. Well, and that's one of those weird things about the internet over the last twenty years, right? Is this idea that celebrity is very different than what it used to be like like traditional celebrity still exists obviously but yeah. like celebrity can now just be somebody screaming onto their web page yes. and then suddenly you know 500,000 people know who they are and right. it's and so then forget bizarre. a week later <laughs> like, yeah 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 it's a strange experience to sort of just be on the internet at all be anybody on the internet is um once upon a time it was kind of cool it's getting a little more terrifying now like it's not as it's not as fun. Yeah. Uh, the internet's weirder now. I think social media has changed how, like, you know, a blog could be a thing that we, you kind of went to your corner with people. You know what I mean? You have your audience and it's almost like having a book. Like yeah. I have my readers and they are engaging with the book because they want to engage with the book. Certainly there are going to be critics and certainly there are going to be reviewers or people who didn't like the book, but they'll go to Amazon and I don't have to worry about them. Um, but then like social media sort of, I, I always say the thing about Twitter in particular is like it kind of started out like, a water cooler where we could all kind of go and we could talk to each other as writers and other professionals and also our readers. And then it kind of became like, we all figured out we were on a stage, except we're all performing at the same time. So there's no audience. We're all audience and performer at equal measure. And then somewhere along the way that stopped. And now it's just a fight club. And we and it's just your first <laughs> night you have to fight. So uh, you just, and it kind of the ground changes beneath your feet so fast. And you realize like, this isn't really my audience or a place that I, uh, control, which you understood, obviously, like I understood I never controlled Twitter or Facebook or any of those places. But um, it's becoming more and more clear that like, 
it's, I'm sad the blog is kind of falling out of favor. So I've kind of tried to go back to the blog a little more and be like, you know what, I'm going to control the space for the inevitability when Twitter falls apart into, into the Mad Max future, or whatever happens to Twitter. Like, yeah, I will. I will still have my weird little uh, patch of real estate. Yeah. And you did a you did a post recently where you talked kind of specifically about uh, authors and selling books on social media. Yeah. And which is, you know, my my career's not nearly as long as yours. Uh, but I like from the start, uh, right when I started kind of getting into that space in preparation for my first book in 2012, like everybody told me you have to. That's how you sell books yeah. on social media. Well, yeah. And you, I mean, our novel careers are the same length. Yeah. Because that's 2012, too. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, they, they were so sure that that was how it worked. Yeah. I, I think my theory has kind of been for many years now that it helps you sell books to the people who already want to buy books from you. Yes. Uh, because it just lets them know that it's there. And if they really want to, they can check. It's a reminder. Yeah. Uh, and it's beyond that. It's just, it's wizardry, right? Like it's just like some weird thing that maybe you'll have a post go viral and then suddenly a jump on the Amazon charts yeah. for an hour. Right. Yeah. But even then, it's like if I have a post go viral, like, yeah, I may see a t- the tiniest bump in sales, but not enough for a publisher to care. Yeah. Not enough that you would chart outside of like a one of those low tectonic earthquakes that you could, you know, feel a hundred hundreds of miles away. You're like, oh, it bumped. I saw like a tiny little bump. No one else felt it but this tiny little needle. Um, so it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of those thinking about those charts and thinking about kind of uh, the way social media affects them and stuff like like early on in my career, I think I think I only had the one book out. I only had Promise of Blood out and I sold there was like a sale that I tweeted about. It was like an Amazon sale. I tweeted about it and I get lots of engagement and I, I it was like a genuine bump. It like sold three or four thousand copies in a day. Yeah. It was an yeah. amazing thing. And the last few years, like Amazon is so noisy now and there's sales all the time that when I get like a really well engaged uh, sale, it's a couple hundred copies. Exactly right. Um, The only way it goes beyond that is if uh, the publisher is engaged in it in some way or it's a special Amazon specific sale where they're they're putting it on blast or it's a book bub thing. It's got to have like a, a reach beyond just the author sort of crowing about buy my book for three dollars please oh my god or i'll die <laughs> right i have to feed my children I have you to don't feed have my children, children. <laughs> i could you don't know <laughs> i might someday they i want to be able too. to feed them exactly my imaginary children <laughs> so you kind of started off with that kind of that freelance rpg area yeah like what did i'm really curious about kind of the 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 genesis and then the development of your career because because when I knew you from the beginning of my career and starting to engage in Twitter and stuff, you were the guy with a, a good, a big blog and who was very sweary and <laughs> who, who liked to rant a lot about things. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and, um, and so it's weird to like, kind of look at your backstory almost and be like, Oh, he had a, like a career for many years before becoming into this public space in a more, uh, in an authorial way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was a weird, like I had a, it's why you can't like why, whenever I give writing advice or whenever I talk to people about writing, they always kind of have the question of like, well, how do I do what you do? And I was like, well, you don't, it, I mean, how could you possibly do what I did? Like trying to even capsule discuss it is difficult, but it's like, I started off wanting to be a novelist. Uh, obviously I wrote books that were terrible. I think five books that were straight up finished and terrible. Uh, I knew that if I was going to survive and be a writer, like I did a number of those series, like terrible day jobs. Uh, so I then 
applied to the uh, White Wolf for the um, one of the freelance gigs. And I wrote a sort of really pretentious essay because I knew they were kind of a pretentious company. So I'm like, <laughs> let's thread this needle and let's let's get a little smug. Uh, and they hired me. So uh, along the way, I was doing that. And then I was still trying to write novels and still failing at doing novels. So I, of course, did what every novelist does. I apparently won a screenwriting contest. So uh, it's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you know, how do you tell people like, well, what you need to do is then feel bad about your own novel writing and try to do screenwriting for a time and win a screenwriting contest. Yeah. Uh, and so in writing, in winning the screenwriting contest, I got a mentorship with a guy named Stephen Susco, who um, is a screenwriter uh, in Hollywood, did the grudge films and a few other things. And um, I wanted him to help me adapt uh, Blackbirds, a book I've been trying to write for five years and, and failing miserably at it. Uh, I'm like, his whole specialty was adapting pre-existing material to the screen. So I was mm-hmm. like, I want you to help me adapt this to a screenplay, which will ha- mean it has an ending because I was never able to write an ending for it. And then I will just rewrite it as a novel. How about yeah. that? How about we do that? Uh, and he was like, yeah, sure. So, you know, you're going to have to learn to outline first. And I was like, no, 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 we don't do that. Funny Hollywood man. <laughs> I'm, I'm from author land. We, we just listen to trees and speak to horses. That's how we write our books. <laughs> uh, and he's like, how's that going for you? I was like, oh, right. Not well. So um, from there, I, you know, I did, in fact, turn Blackbirds into a screenplay and then back into a novel. But then I got a screenwriting partner and we had a pilot uh, with TBS and that didn't take off. Thank God, because it was terrible. Sorry, uh, TNT. And, um, you know, we had a, a, our script go to the take us to the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. And then the following year, we had a short film at Sundance. Uh, we had like a weird digital narrative that was an um, sort of a choose your own adventure unfolding sort of thing that got an Emmy nomination. So it's like this janky pinball career that I'm just like, I mostly just flailed wildly until I landed on something that I could stick with, which is currently (laughs) novel writing. So uh, it's very hard to tell people how to recreate your path when the path is mostly just like, I fell down a bunch of steps and I hit every step on the way down and it was a bunch of writing stuff. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that whole kind of journey is that you, you know, you say you were flailing wildly, right? But like you were, you were, trying to become an author, but you were also supporting yourself by writing at the same time, which I think a lot of, I think that does happen, but I think a lot of people who are writing their novel, trying to break in there, they've got a traditional day job. They're kind of doing their thing. And I think it's, I'm actually kind of fascinated by this idea of, uh, of writing while you're trying to break into a different type of writing, because that seems like so much creative energy that you would have to pour into it. It is. And it also didn't really work that well. Um, yeah, because what would happen, what what eventually happened was when the time came that I needed to disentangle from the sort of the quote unquote day job of freelancing. And I knew I wanted to commit to this book, this book, Blackbirds, and really like do a start to finish rewrite after I had done the screenwriting kind of side thing. Um, I knew I was going to have a financially bad year. And thankfully, <laughs> you know, I, it's really entirely a privileged thing that I had a wife who had a good job mm-hmm. and she had health insurance. At the time, there was no ACA. So it wasn't like I could just, we could just get something without it costing, you know, thousands of dollars a month. So I was like, all right, we're going to, I'm like, sort of like, do you have faith that I can do this? I mean, she's like, well, you know, you've been writing for a long time. It's not like you're just like, hey, honey, I want to write a novel like everybody. It was like, I mean, I had a little cred going for me, but. It was a leap in that one year sort of disentangling from, hey, I, I've got to leave my freelance work, all of it behind, no more contracts, and then move into really concentrating on a novel. Uh, I mean, I had, it was like the worst possible financial year of my life. And it was uh, really hard. The following year, I came back because it, it paid dirt. I mean, I, I got it and uh, ended up getting a contract and 
uh, more contracts. And then I, I sort of started that, that train of chugging along, but it was a hard, uh, like, you know, jumping out of one airplane and trying to hope another airplane catches you. So it's a little, it's a little scary. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's something in that to kind of, it's an investment in yourself that you don't know is going to pay off. Right. Yeah. Because publishing is not exactly like, no one tells you like, Oh, you want to hit it big kid, go into publishing. Like, that's not how you do it. And, you know, like my first advance was not exactly a, a, a barnstormer of an advance. So you're like, Ooh, I don't know if I can live on this that like, you know, and you're like kind of doing the head, like the math in your head, like almost like I would do with freelancing. Like if I can write this many books in a year and sell even half of them, like what, that could be a living wage for me. And I would not die in the void. Right. Right. Do you, when you kind of were, when you were kind of making those calculations, is there any space in there for the idea of royalties? Or do you think that authors still kind of have to live off of the idea of the money that they can only that they can depend on only is what they're going to get from an advance? I think while royalties are good and I have thankfully gotten them on various books, but they are not count onable because the industry is so I mean, it's already like a moonshot to get published, right? right? And then to get published and have your book be successful enough to earn past its advance and earn you royalties um, is also like just an extra rarefied air. You're breathing like, oh, I, I'm very, this is special. I'm doing something really special if I'm getting royalties in a book. So I don't think it's something you can count on um, because it's so fickle and unpredictable. Um, and even predictability in terms of like yeah. this last year with how books didn't ship on time or with the pandemic or whatever, you know, cuckoo banana pants nonsense is going on in the world uh, makes it very difficult to count on royalties as, as a going forward kind of a thing. Plus those royalties are like not amazing a lot of the times. Like, sometimes you're like, I got royalties, but you're like, it's a hundred dollars randomly dropping to you twice a year or something like that. It's like, yay. I guess yeah. I like tacos. I like tacos. Hey, right. You can you can afford to go to Chipotle now. This is amazing. Yeah. I'm I am up here. Everything's fantastic. <laughs> Things are perfect. I have no rent money, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all right. Yeah, I'll figure it out eventually. It's fine. I've got Chipotle. How has your family kind of felt about your career over the last couple of decades? Uh, good. I mean, you know, my kid is now old enough to have, like, I started writing or publishing novels and he was born. So it was like right out of the gate. I was like, well, I better make this work because yeah. it turns out there's there's him and he seems like he's very hungry. Uh, and it turns out <laughs> Child Protective Services does not like when you don't feed your kid. So I uh, had to do that. So, uh, you know, he's obviously up until recently was not even really aware of it. like. He knew I had written Star Wars, but like was in loved Star Wars, but kind of didn't care that I had anything to do with it. It was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, can you talk to me about Boba Fett more? Like, it was not a thing that was interesting to him. It was only recently when I had a middle grade book out that he actually finally read something of mine and was like, oh, you could actually like you actually do this. I was like, yeah, no, I, I can really. This is a real thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm here to tell you this is what's been paying for all of the things you you uh, currently have. So, um but my wife has found it good and weird. She's just she's a stay at home mom once he was born and was able to sort of disentangle from uh, the day job. So uh, that's been good. But it's I mean, it's it's like a weird job because it's, you know, we don't get up in the morning. And be like, see you later, honey. I got to go to my, you know, nine to five. And it's like I have erratic hours and yeah. having the writing should help kind of define time. Like so I would leave in the morning and come back at a certain time and not uh, completely drown in emails and editing and stuff for because i mean when the when i was doing it from inside the house i would be there 
all the time, just working all the time. And that was not sustainable. Do you still have the writing shed? I do. I mean, I have a second one because we moved. So I Ooh. had a new one built and I'm in it currently. Oh, very nice. But yeah, it's very, it's good. I, I've been struggling lately with, especially, you know, after, you know, two years of pandemic with that separation of kind of work life, home life. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I've, I, I think I've always struggled with it, but I, I haven't, it's, it's not something I had the vocabulary or kind of the self-awareness to really deal with. Yes. And the last three months I've been just popping out of the house about around noonish uh, for three, four, five hours and just going and sitting in my car and writing on my tablet uh, mm-hmm. in a parking That's lot. And honestly, it's been so nice. And I'm yeah. thinking, okay, do I, do I, do like a writing shed, like what Chuck has done. Do yeah. I do, uh, do I start renting an office somewhere? Like yeah. I, I, once it hits summer and it's a hundred degrees in the high desert, I'm not going to want to be sitting in the car. No, no, you will be um, an ant under a magnifying glass at that point. Yeah. So, but it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Kind of that, that, uh, that distance that you have to try to figure out between your home life and your work life when you work from home and you're yes. kind of always working because the work is 90% in your head. Yes. And because it's creative, you, I mean, I, I know writers who hate it, but generally speaking, like, I think we enjoy what we do or at least become obsessed with what we do. So it's like really hard. You just kind of in it all the time, even if you're in the house or whatever, like that's why I'm like, thank God for walks and showers and stuff. I'm like, sometimes my wall, my wife will like come poke her head in like I'm showering. She'll try to talk to me. I'm like, huh? Like I was <laughs> 300 miles into a story somewhere. I'm like, I'm just turning characters over and over in my head, like a rock. Uh, and so I'm like, I have to, you know, apologize. I'm like, listen, I am out of my mind right now. Uh, I'm in a fantasy land and I'm so sorry. I've, I've had to tell my wife on many occasions, look, if you're not making eye contact with me in the same room, chances are I did not hear what you just said. You said the same, thing. The same exact thing. Like, I'm so sorry, but it's gone. Whatever it was is now gone. Yeah. I don't have it. I don't have it. I, my brain is a fantasy land just all the time. And the sometimes time. it's work and sometimes it's video games or whatever it yep. is that's amusing me at the time. But yep. I am always in my own little playground in the brain. Yes. And it's really hard to explain that to people who don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I, I like I, I have a lot of friends who have regular jobs and regular careers and they once they get home in the evening, they're done and they don't think about their jobs over the weekends. And, right. and it's so hard to, to do that when you're an author. Yeah. I don't, we don't have that. We don't, we don't escape. We do not escape. <laughs> so so uh, pandemic, how are you doing with the pandemic? Because it's been, um, oh, been real pandemic. <laughs> it's terrible. You know, yeah. like, like I've got, uh, I have, uh, a, a degenerative illness and my wife has severe mental illness. And so, but the two of us are, have basically been, 99% self-isolated for two years. Yeah. And it's, it's awful. Like we, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Like that was part of the, part of the reason I started this podcast is like, holy shit, I need to talk to people occasionally. Yes. Like, uh, you know, over the summer we had like this brief window where we started hanging out with relatives again. And we're mm. like, Oh, we're vaccinating. Everything's fine. I remember and, that sweet, sweet time. Oh, it was so nice. And I think the, we, we were talking and the last time we saw anybody in our home was November and we're like, Oh gosh, we're back to that again. Yep. Oh. Yeah. It feels, feels like old, like nostalgia for 2020 in the worst way. Like the <laughs> nastiest kind of nostalgia. I remember this. 
Right, right. This oh. time it's different because it feels like so many people don't care. Oh, and it's like I remember in 2020, everyone's like, "We're going to sing at night for the healthcare workers and flatten the curve, everybody." Now everyone's like, "Just, just, just pr- press the accelerator. Let's just drive through this pandemic as quickly as possible." And you're like, "That can't work. That can't work." Yeah, and well, and that felt like kind of with the uh, with Omicron hitting, it was like everybody's like, "Oh, it's so contagious." Well, screw it. I guess I'm getting it. Yeah, it's fine. It's mild. Let's just all. Have it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm a fat person with uh with rheumatoid arthritis. I don't want to risk this. Yeah, this is bad. I don't want that. That sounds bad. Uh this is gonna be this is gonna be a poor ending for me if I if I'm too too cavalier about it. Yeah. Did did it affect your writing at all with the pandemic or was it um so, I mean I know writers have had some very different experiences in terms of what they can do and accomplish. You know, I I think for a long time. I told myself that it wasn't, yeah. um, but it, a uh, man, I had a, I, I, I signed a contract for a new book in, gosh, I don't remember when I actually signed the contract, I think early in 2020. Yeah. And then uh, 2020, I had to write the dang thing. As it turns and, out, it's the worst right? thing about the contracts, by the way, when you haven't written the book yet, you're like, oh, damn it. Right. And then I spent about, I probably spent about 16 months writing and rewriting the book that should have taken me a single draft yeah. to get something decent. And yeah. my editor didn't like the first draft. I didn't like the second draft. And then the third draft were finally like, oh yeah, this is, this is really good. We did uh, and, but like, I just, it was an experience of, of so much kind of like constant burnout because you're yeah. not able to refresh yourself by going outside. Yes. And, you know, you can't say, oh, I, I hit a big milestone. Let's go have a fancy dinner. You know, yep. you can't say, oh, there's a new convention. That'll be a great break. I'll write notes over the weekend and talk to lots of friends. Yeah. You know? yeah, especially like when you talk to other writers and you get kind of refreshed on that creative energy that they have. Yeah. They're a wellspring of energy that you can like a vampire feed off of, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it's like I, you don't have that anymore. It's just you know, talking to the wall. So I can see how this podcast is definitely uh, firing on the cylinder. Yeah. Yeah. How, how about you? How did, did you guys feel like you have weathered things decently so far? I mean, in terms of the like normal part of the pandemic, I think we've done okay. I'm fortunate enough, obviously to be the person who works and it's, I work in the house. So um, not much, and I'm relatively introverted anyway. So like I'm an extroverted introvert. Like I feel like <laughs> song and dancey, but I want to hide in a cave most times. So it, it's been okay for that. Um, when it started, I had no writing juice. It was just like, I always say it's like trying to like, you just like broke your leg and you want to run, but you can't yeah. even walk. Like you can't even accomplish getting out of bed without pain. And it just felt like that anytime I go, like I would just stare and I never had really this before where I would just like look at a blank page and be like, nope, <laughs> that's just, I got nothing. It's just, I see snow in the wind. I can't do, put anything here. So you know, I, I was fortunate enough at that point that I had two books I had to edit um, and editing kind of worked on a different brain level. Like I was allowed to just sort of sit and pick at mm-hmm. books for a while and be like, I'm just going to mess with these chapters and these paragraphs, and these characters uh, without really contributing new words to anything. And that felt OK. Um, but it took a while. It was almost maybe not quite a year before I really started to write something new. And then I actually wrote uh, the Wanderer sequel during pandemic, which is weird because I wrote a post-pandemic book in the midst of a pandemic. So <laughs> that was kind of like a cognitive dissonance kind of going from that. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it was just took a long time to build back steam and it was um, odd to feel so injured uh, from it because uh, it's like I wasn't personally being, we weren't sick. And I mean, I knew people who were and maybe who didn't do well with it, but it was like, just felt like you're like, I, I wasn't even, I don't even want to call it depression. I mean, it certainly may have been at some level, but it was just this weird, like out of syncness 
with things. Like I just like felt like gears were slipping and I couldn't get anything together. Yeah. It's, it's that weird experience of like a, a global mass trauma, but without the defining ele- element of like, you know, like the twin towers coming down right. on nine 11. Like there's no defining element of COVID. It's just an ongoing rolling trauma of yeah. waking up every morning and saying, Oh, the numbers are down or the numbers are up or, right. Oh, there's a new thing going on. A new, new variation of the, yeah. of, of the illness. <laughs> like the Megatron variant is out now, everybody. We're good. Right. Like it's, it's such a bizarre thing because it's not even like a war. It's almost like a war in, but it's all emotional and yeah. it's all like, it's distant until suddenly it hits you. Yes. Yeah. It's like a miasma. It's like you're breathing it in all the time, but you're not really, you just, per, you're just constantly aware of the, the trauma, the sort of area of effect trauma that's going on. And it's weird too, to sort of see how people react to it and to have that be an additional layer to you know, how you feel about the pandemic, watching people be like, it's not real. I'm drinking my own pee. It's fine. You're like, whoa, what, what the, that's not good. I don't, from a fictional perspective, I'm interested in this, but uh, uh, looking through <laughs> it, kind of not cool. Right, right. It's like, that's a character you want to write, not have as have as a neighbor, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, or a relative. Or a relative. That's that's how it always is. It's always the relatives. Right. When it comes to Thanksgiving. Oh man. And it's, yeah. And it's this, it's, it's it just, it feels like it's, it does feel never ending, uh, you know, because you get like we were talking about, like you get like that's the over the summer last year. You're kind of like, oh, man, we're all we're getting vaccinated. We're now vaccinated. We feel fine. We should we can start doing social things again. Right. And and then it changes and it's not. Yeah, you're not allowed anymore. No. And you didn't realize how important that respite was like you didn't know you should accelerate swiftly to joy. Like you're like, all right, the numbers starting to look good. We'll start to kind of come out of our houses. We'll start to do some things you're like I wish I would have just. Like, let's go on a, a vacation. To, let's get on a plane. Let's go somewhere right now. This is this yeah. is this is what we're getting. Yeah, this is it. yeah. And I, I like I had not gotten to the point where I was like comfortable flying. I was yeah. very much like I was like, okay, I'm I'm comfortable if there's like a family emergency, I would fly somewhere. But I'm not going to do anything that's you know like uh, just for fun. And and I kind of wish I had right. Like exactly. I missed my chance. <laughs> I missed my chance. That's why I'm like telling my wife like. We need to eyeball the numbers. And if they dip low enough, we need to get a whole bunch of things done on the house. We are going on a vacation. I don't make it like some dogs. I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to just, we're going to go hog wild. We've been planning a new, uh, a new master bathroom for like three years now. And it's like, oh, well, the moment we could have maybe felt comfortable having workers in the house every day for three weeks, like we missed that. And we wouldn't have been able to schedule it anyways, because we would have. We would have scheduled it when we were comfortable. And then four months later, when it happened, we wouldn't have been comfortable anymore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're like throwing a baseball from a satellite, you know, <laughs> and trying to hope it hits someone. You're like, I've got this, honey. It's fine. You can't. Yeah. You just can't predict where we're going to land next. So we have that too. We have like a whole bunch of things that we need to do in the house. And all these projects are lining up behind each other. You know, I'm pretty sure just in like five years, we'll just be living in a pile of rubble. Be like, too bad we couldn't get any work done. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like, man. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. Something I'm kind of fascinated by with your career is, you know, mentioned earlier, like when I first became aware of you, you were kind of the sweary, funny guy on Twitter. And you almost went mainstream, I would say, with going over to Disney and doing Star Wars books. A little bit, yeah. Was that like a weird transition for you personally? It was because Star Wars, like, you know, you think, and it feels a certain way too, like when you get in there, you realize, you don't realize initially that that audience is not your audience, Mm -hmm. right? Because like I had the people who were reading my books and who enjoyed the sort of the sweary, you know, horror-y, whatever fun stuff that I was writing. Uh, And then to move into the Star Wars space and to suddenly have all of these people who were fans of Star Wars, but who had no idea who I was. Uh, And some of those people became fans of mine eventually, but some of the people were obviously not very happy with me being involved in it all, even though obviously I wasn't writing sweary Star Wars. I wasn't like, yeah, we're going to write F this Han Solo. Uh, So, you know, I still felt like I was writing a Star Wars book and I knew that going in. I wasn't trying to, um, you know, brand it to be some sort of like weird, you know, edgy, funny, absurd kind of a thing. I was still trying to do a a Star Wars story the way I wanted to just do one. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was successful, but it was a weird kind of merging of audiences that didn't always feel perfectly comfortable. Yeah. Was there ever a moment like in the initial in, uh, kind of negotiations where you kind of went, me? Really? Like, well, yeah, that was you want was. me to write Star Wars? <laughs> because it was a kind of a joke. I tweeted about one. I'm like, well, there's new movies. I would like to write some Star Wars someday. That'd be great because I like Star Wars. And yeah. then like kind of behind the scenes, people started to make that happen. And then I met with, um, uh, at the time, Shelly, the uh, Del Rey editor at New York Comic Con. And she was like, so I I read uh, one of your books. And I was like, well, then it was good meeting you. I guess I'm not going to work for Star Wars. That's And she's like, no, I, I read the other one. I, she read um, my Heartland books, the uh, young adult. She was like, that. those felt very Star Warsy. y uh, And I have had them compared to being like if John Steinbeck wrote Star Wars. So I was like, okay, I can see that. That's, that, that's good. Um, so I was excited about that. And I didn't, but I didn't really think about the sort of larger implications of even writing the book, I only had a month to write the first book. Oh, um, the first draft. Yeah, it was initially three months. And to kind of go back to the shed, the shed was a vital part of that. So it was like September 4th was when I tweeted about wanting to write Star Wars. And then I met her in, I guess it was October. And then so we, I quick pitched some, put something uh, together and pitched it. Uh, and they accepted it. And so I was set to start writing it on like January 1st. 
And so she's like, initially the books were supposed to come out or the first book was supposed to come out that November, just before mm-hmm. the movie came out. But she's like, now we're doing this big Force Friday push and it's going to come out in September. Ironically, on September 4th, literally a year after I tweeted about it. And I was like, oh, that's great. She's like, the bad news is because it's two months sooner, that means the three months you had to write a first draft, you now only have one month to write a first draft. So oh. uh, at that time was the shed had just finished being built. And, uh, you know, my son was at that point, I don't know how old he was exactly, four or five or something like that. So he was like, I would say he's like John McClane. He's coming into the vents in my office in the house. There was no keeping him out uh, from from distracting me. And, you know, he's like a kid and he's awesome. So I like if he wants to come in and play, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to bring the toys in. We're going to we're going to play today. So uh, having that shed just be that little bit of distance. Uh, that was that was the first thing I did in the writing shed was sit and write a Star Wars novel in a month. Man. And I I can't imagine the kind of pressure, especially like it was. Uh, did you find out? early on in the process that you were basically slated to be one of the new books in kind of the new canon and everything. Yeah. It, like I knew it was going to be the first bridging book between, you know, return of the Jedi, like following up right on return of the Jedi and dealing. Uh, I didn't have a trilogy deal at first. I just had the one book and they were like, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And then, um, but I knew it was uh, that whatever books would come ideally for me would bridge the gap to the battle of Jakku. Problem is I didn't know what any of that was. They like, they wouldn't tell me anything. Like it was, we would have these weird secret calls. It'd be like, all right, get on the phone. And we're going to tell you about a planet. And I'd be like, okay. And they get on the phone and be like, don't type any of this down. Just hand write it. Because in case you're hacked, we don't want people to find out. And they'd be like, the name of the planet is Jakku. And I'm like, okay, cool. So what's Jakku like? We can't tell you that. would be like, <laughs> okay. They're like, But you need to put it in, in the book somewhere. And I'm like, but I don't know anything about it. You just want me to include it. like somehow. And then, like, they would give me a character name here, but tell me nothing about it. Like, I, they wouldn't tell me if it was uh, uh, what species or if it was human or so. I would, it was like pulling teeth to try to get information, yeah, uh, out of them. <laughs> it was a fascinating experience. I, I bet it's like a, it's got to be like the author equivalent of working for the government temporarily, it is. right? Yeah, so much redacted, but there's also no like story bible. Like I had, you know, having worked in games and stuff, like I'm pretty used to being like, we put together this deck. And it's, you know, 400 pages of images and text telling you about our universe. And you're like, well, surely Star Wars has that. Yeah. And Star Wars did not have that. There was nothing. There was just a go. Oh, did they not have it or did they not want to show it to you? They didn't have it. They put that those movies in that situation together so fast. They didn't have it. There was nothing. It was just like we were all making it up as we went. And uh, but then it was crazy. You'd be like they'd have these secret calls with me and they leak like a the name of something, a planet, but then like the next day they would, talk, they would give it to the media anyway. Yeah. You'd be like, why did I have to go through this subterfuge to find out this thing that you were about to just tell everyone anyway? Right. So, all right. Right. I like, I wonder if it's, it, it had to have come from a bit of their experience with kind of maybe coming from like the MCU where like actors were regularly spilling the beans in interviews. Boiling. Absolutely. And it comes too from like JJ Abrams, who is so, mystery box oriented that he would often not tell them about things he was planning to do which is not ideal when it's you're trying to like deal with story group and translate you know the information into a a universe going forward because like that's the other thing about star wars that's especially tricky is you know with marvel it's like there's the mcu but then there's the comics but then there's the games and they don't have to talk to each other at all stuff can bleed over if you like this maybe you'll move it there but you know with star wars everything talks to each other so as that universe deepens, it gets harder and harder to tell any stories because they're like, 
well, but if you do that here, it plucks on these three strands here, mm-hmm. and then these three stories are affected. And that's like a, a narrative juggling act that I think for them is getting harder and harder to pull off. Well, I got to imagine, you know, because I, I think any author that has written more than one book in a series <laughs> knows how difficult it's it can hard. be to keep writing sequels and then trying to remember the little bits and pieces that they've yes. threaded through. And once you get something as large narratively as Star Wars, especially when they kind of cut off the old canon, but then said, oh, but we're still going to pluck characters out of it yes. that we like, and and maybe we'll use some of this stuff here and there. Yeah. That, there's so much going on. So much. Yeah. It's like you're, it's like a thousand chainsaws being juggled at any one given time. And so it's very easy to sort of bork canon a little bit. And I think some of that has to be okay. Like, first of all, because canon is not like a thing people should worry that much about. I mean, you want consistency, <laughs> but like- yeah. At a certain level, like these are, we're not reading history books. You're not reading like books of facts, but some people read Star Wars or any kind of giant, you know, fan built universes. They read it for like data. They just want to know like, well, who killed who, when, and when did this spaceship get invented? And they care about like this bank of information, almost like they're, they're learning about the, you know, the presidents, <laughs> like which president succeeded this president? This is all real. And you're like, but it's not, it's not real. It's, None of the, I would say that Star Wars is is the perfect emblem for the Star Wars is uh, the Millennium Falcon because mm-hmm. it's a ugly hunk of junk that flies awesome and you adore it even though it's like the jankiest spaceship in the galaxy. It's just junk and that's a, that's wonderful and I don't say that as a pejorative. I mean that's really like I think why we respond so well to Star Wars because it's kind of made up as it goes and it's this mm-hmm. clumsy sort of like you know like Jedi kid in his garage is like that's sort of what we're watching just in a more elegant way. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it kind of had that thing from the very beginning of this is lovable yeah. and we want to keep making it more and more lovable. Like I remember as a kid, I I devoured those old Star Wars novels like yeah. crazy. And the ones I hated were the ones that treated themselves too seriously. Yes. Like yeah. like there were, I, I remember one of them, I can't remember the name of it, but there was one of them that was like the search for Leia's mom or something <laughs> like that. And it yeah. and I remember like being like thirteen and being like, This is the most boring yeah. adult drivel I've ever seen yeah, like, in Star Wars. The lightsabers and the monsters and the- Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 such a wild kind of cultural a juggernaut. I, I almost said artifact, but it's not an artifact. Like it's still going and it's, it's, Oh, a, it is still going. Yeah. It's such a juggernaut. That's that kind of hangs over us. And, and, and it's funny. Cause like I can, I can talk crap all I want about like the new sequels, but then I'm still watching Mandalorian. You know, Michelle and I watched Boba Fett the other day. Like, yeah, right. like I'm, I'm still jump. I'm still invested in it. Yeah, even like though like, yeah, I have so many like there's like lots of that like young Brian fanboy is you know angry about some dumb thing. He's ranting in your head about something. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, still invested, still watching, still enjoying it. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a bizarre thing and such a like it's taken over our lives. You know, like every even authors like me who don't write in Star Wars still think about it all the time. Yeah. Would you? Would you write in Star Wars? You, I mean, I mean, it's a um, it is a weird question. Like, I feel like if they came and offered me a novella, yeah. I feel like I, I would I would be proud enough to do something like that, yeah. that I would I would I would tell my agent, screw it. I'm carving out the time yeah. like um. But if if it was like a whole novel, I'd probably say my my personal career is good enough that, you know, unless they're offering me lots of money, which I understand doesn't really happen anymore. Um, no. <laughs> then I then, yeah, I, I probably would have to turn it down. But yeah, a short story or a novella. 
probably yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd jump on that. I think that's usually what I tell people who ask me because it's like it's it's both a big commitment in time because it's more time than you're used to in writing a book because now you have first you have to do the pitching and sort of negotiate you know who all who gets to edit this thing because it's not just like your editor it's like then there's a story group but then there's also disney everybody sort of takes a look at it. it's almost like making a movie it's not it's a there is a committee process behind this but then it's also like you you don't really own any of it and their contract is brutal <laughs> so it's yeah. like you know when you see something on screen that came out of a comic book or a book like nobody's getting anything for that there's no they're not even getting a thank you so you're not like it's cool, but also like sort of demoralizing in a way to have like, to not even get like a wink and a nod, like, hey, good job, buddy. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, this is ours now. Thanks for making this toy. We're going to go play with it over here and forget you ever existed. So you're like, oh, that's sad. Well, and it, it is kind of the, I mean, that's the nature of the beast with intellectual property writing. Exactly. Right? Yep. Um, and it's, you know, it's trying to get, hopefully getting a tiny slice of that fame. To help your own personal career. Right. Um, but yeah, you can't expect much. I, I imagine you can expect, you know, maybe I'll get a couple of cool trips out of it. You know, I'll get invited to New York Comic Con. I'll get to mainline and, a, you know, a, a panel or two. Yeah. But other than that, I can't imagine a ton comes from it. No. And if you don't really love it, like you don't really love that story world, I don't know that tie-in fiction is going to do much for anybody. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it's, it's kind of a, it is, it is kind of a crazy part of what we do because, a lot of there's a lot of authors like you that do both. Yeah. Um, you know, there's authors like me that just work in my own world. Um, and and then there's occasionally you'll come across an author who only does intellectual property rights. Yep. And they do it very well. Oh uh, yeah, they're masters of the form. They know how to kind of make it read like it needs to like there's a certain kind of cadence to certain time fiction and it's sort of uh it's an almost masterful formula yeah like and it's not formulaic in how they produce the story but i mean it they all feel the same it, it, in a purposeful uh way I, I it sounds like i'm being derogatory it's really not to actually be able to sort of like create this thing like it's like a meal when you're like a chef making a meal they have to make that meal the same every time that's very hard i mean it's very hard for even us to sort of like go from book to book and sort of find what people liked about the last one and find how to replicate it in the next one so um people who do tie-ins exclusively know how to do that uh at a really artful masterful level yeah i i always kind of think about you touched on this a little bit but i always kind of think about um where would my ego be working on something like that because my my ego wants me to be in charge yes. narratively of what's going on yeah. and and i feel like i'd probably struggle with that i think i think i could probably do novella short story i could probably divor divorce myself enough from it to just say oh this is a fun side project i'm working on but if yeah. i had to take six months out of my life and work exclusively on a single book and then have no kind of ownership of it uh, emotionally oh, uh, even yeah then i'm not sure if i could divorce myself from that it got harder because like initially i even though obviously i, I don't control like the financial part of star wars but like aftermath was because they had such a uh, short time frame and they were like you know they were really going right out of the airlock <laughs> to, to, to with with you know from to into oxygen it was like i had no time and they had no time so there was no um room for everyone to sort of negotiate the the sort of narrative back and forth or kind of them to sort of enforce ownership it was just like a let's build this thing as we go like a parachute on the way down so uh that was pretty great because it gave me a lot of uh freedom mm -hmm. um and it was fun it, like and i didn't like you talk asked about pressure earlier i had no pressure on the first book 
because it was so fast. I didn't even know what it meant. Yeah. I was just like, my, my job here is to write this book as best as I can in uh, four weeks. And that, so there was no, uh, I didn't even have time to think about pressure. Um, but as the sort of books went on and as I kind of got into the comics, then in that universe tightened up more and more voices kind of came in to sort of, you would literally have people like arguing in the comment section of your edits, but like coming to no conclusion, like there'd just be various people arguing about Star Wars, which is cool from a geek standpoint to see like the people who make Star Wars argue about Star Wars in your liner notes. But yeah, uh, it became very difficult to sort of navigate and negotiate what you're even supposed to do with that uh, as a writer. So you did sort of start to feel like, I, I imagine how some screenwriters feel like, well, I turned this blueprint in and now it's like gonna, someone else is going to do something. With yeah. It. Well, and I imagine with those kind of situations that often these companies are so big and and sometimes very disorganized to the point where I, I can imagine you'd looking at those notes and thinking, OK, which of these people actually has seniority, which is in charge? Like, which am I supposed to live? Yes. Yeah. Who do I listen to? Oh, it's absolutely that. I have to ask that question. I'm like, who? And actually, at a certain point, I was mostly like, I'll just pick the one I like. Yeah. Like the voice that sounds good to what I want to write. I'll try to just do that. Uh, and it seemed fine, but it was very confusing. It's, again, it's why I really much prefer writing my own material outside <laughs> of the royalties and the, like I control film and TV rights and I control all the ancillary stuff about it. And, and I control a lot more of the publishing experience. Um, even though obviously we're still with traditional publishing, you can give up some things. Um, I have a lot more uh, invested in myself and in the work than uh, Star Wars can give me. Right, right. Well, tell me a little bit about the series you're working on right now. Uh, I have no specific series. I'm, uh, Wanderers was a, initially going to be a standalone book. Um, and I always said it was a standalone book uh, unless, um, you know, people read it and liked it and I had a story for it. And there was, I mean, for, f to be frank, if there was money there, like if there was a reason to make a sequel. Because yeah. I think... You know, so much of my career was bundled up in selling a series here and there. And you that's just such a demoralizing place to be because like that first book comes out and maybe it does OK. But then they don't devote as much marketing attention to the second book, which means the second book isn't going to do as well as the first book because you still need that. You can't coast on everything you got off the first book. You have to keep reminding people and from a publisher perspective, like it's their job to kind of goose that uh, and make sure that the audience is aware and present for that second book. So if they don't do that, then suddenly the second book doesn't sell as well. And then, you know, Barnes & Noble is cutting their order for the third book. So by the time you're like even writing the third book, like you already see the the arc. <laughs> it's already yeah. like, a, a def like a, things are deflating, but you're still having to keep up like the pretense that it, this is going to work. And you're like, oh, I'm going to write this third book that no one's going to read. And you just kind of feel like it's it doesn't seem like a smart business model to just um, commit to, you know, what it might ostensibly be three years of your life to commit this series that you don't know how it's going to do. It's one thing if they're going to release them all in short order and you have them written or something like that, but that sort of like long tail on it is, is a little harder to justify. So with Wanderers, I was like, I'm going to do one book and it's going to be a big book and it's going to be a complete story. And if for some reason it sells really well or, and, or, um, I have an idea. Is there something there? And if the publisher wants it, like that's the other kind of the third axis. It's not just my control. Obviously, they have to give the thumbs up and green light for it. So uh, it did sell well. It did really well in its first couple of weeks alone. And I was very happy with that. And then on the way out to my book tour for Wanders, I was like, oh, I have I literally like first flight out. I was like, oh, I have an idea for the sequel. It like came to me in one massive run just sitting there on the plane. And so I was like, OK, we'll see if this is a thing. This book continues to sell and the publisher is interested in the sequel. 
uh, I will do that. So, and that's sort of where that happened. I don't envision it as an ongoing series. So, uh, Wayward is the sequel, and then I'll come out in August. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, just one more at the moment, at least. Yeah, one more at the moment. Yeah. Uh, see that weirdly, that sounds stre- more stressful to me. Oh, does it? Because I, because as an epic fantasy writer, I am expected to, to produce yeah. series. Yeah. yeah. And it's and it's just part of the thing. And and like you were talking about with kind of that the publisher kind of starting to ignore you more and more as you keep going yeah. because that's kind of the nature of the way that their business model works. It is. I, I, I've been fortunate enough with kind of powder mage with the two trilogies in powder mage to have it kind of, even though I could see those diminishing returns on sequels, the first book kept selling so well yeah. that I was, I kind of felt like I was investing in the first book with, each sequel. Well, that's exactly right. That's a though there's a decline. If the one is always riding high, mm-hmm. you're you're good. Yeah, that's the trick. Uh, it's when that first one kind of starts to die back, and you start to feel like, oh no, I don't know what happens now. Right, right. Like, oh crap. Uh, what, yeah. what am I moving on to something yeah. uh, that's going to take you know a couple of years to kind of yes. you know get that churning the new machine of that yeah. new universe churning. Uh, but the nice thing is when you do like a book that's outside of a, a series or anything like that, the publisher treats it like it's a new book. Like yeah, you yeah. have to invest in it. Like, oh, we can't just can't just rely. We got to like actually put effort into putting it out in the world again. I'm like, yeah, you do. Publishers, <laughs> see you. Please. Please, please do that. I really, I need to feed my kid. I know. I can't just tweet about it. We've already talked about this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I find that really fascinating that you had written a whole book and then decided to do another one. Just because everything I've worked on so far in my career has been kind of these uh, self-contained trilogies where the trilogy is almost a book in of itself. Yeah. A, a massive book, you know, a half million word book. Yeah. Um, and you know it's Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and and so I I guess it wouldn't even occur to me to plot a single book, yeah, and then even have ideas for something happening afterwards. Yeah, I, I, though to be fair, like it's practically three books. It's on, it's like a two hundred eighty thousand word book. The first one, so that is a that is a big book. It's a yeah, it was too it was too big, bad it was a bad idea. But I I mean I actually really liked writing a huge story like that and it's sort of a capsule contained book. Um, but it is, it is weird. Yeah. To sort of be like, is, so I might just be done with this now. Like this is, this is it putting it out of the world. And then I can forget about it if I want, which feels yeah. both liberating and sad at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you have a, if you were kind of put against a corner, would you, what is your favorite writing place? And by that, I mean, uh, do you like short form, long form comics? Like, what is the thing that is the most fulfilling to you? Uh, definitely not short. I can't. Anytime I go to write short form, I'm like, wow, oops, it's a novel. Like, I, <laughs> it's, like it's like, oops, I fell into another novel. That was not how this was supposed to go. But here we are. Um, comics is cool. And I really like comics, but it feels to me more. It's like it's just such a strange industry mm-hmm. like, in the same way that Hollywood is like you sort of produce what is essentially an outline, but with like some detail to it. And you let other people layer on acting or, uh, you know, the, the, the artwork and, and line art. Uh, so it's kind of a, just an odd experience. And there's comics, especially is chaos. Like screenwriting has explicit formulas for how you write a screenplay, even down to the margins and the font sizes, everything like your, your, you know, final draft just, just does it all for you. 
uh, comics when I started working in comics. They're like, oh, we're going to send you some comic scripts so you can get an idea how to write a comic. Well, they sent me like, I don't know, 10 scripts. And I would say after reading them, I had less idea how to write a comic than I did before I started. I'm like, none of these match. You realize none of these match. Some of them are incredibly wordy, word, you know, uh, world bible huge chunks of description and text. And some of them are like, fight here, three pages, and then there's some dialogue. And you're just like, wow, okay. And then the, every font was different. It was the wild west of writing. So uh, for me, it's like just big, chunky books. I just really like big books. Uh, I feel satisfied sort of writing something that's like that kind of, you know, I don't want to say necessarily epic, but 100,000 words and more feels like you're getting a, a both a good uh, room to play. Mm-hmm. And I also think that readers tend to be, if you can do it right and really not just like drag it on, if you can really make those uh, sort of epic word count feel impactful. Uh, I love that readers are like falling into a, a hole with a book like that. Like it's like a journey for them. That feels. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it. I I like as somebody who does that kind of for a living is only doing the long form. Yeah. yeah you get it. Like it is, it is that weird sort of, cause I I've done some short form stuff and I, you know, it's, and it's quite cool to write a novella in eight days and then, you know, self-publish it or something like yeah. that, you know, like there, there's something very kind of cathartic about getting a story out really quickly. Yeah. And, and I've noticed with like, even with this podcast, there's that little like boost of like adrenaline of, oh, I get to release something every week and then yeah. say, this is great. Oh, uh, dopamine. But, <laughs> it's good right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But man, it, it's those big, long series when you, you kind of you're doing these massive books and it's only coming out what once a year, once, once every year. 18 months or something yeah. like that. Uh, like the, the, when it comes out, it does feel way more impactful to me. Yeah. And, and I do think the fans kind of, I think that they do kind of latch onto that. They, they dig, they can dig their claws deeper into something that has, you know, 200,000 words because they're spending so much more time with the characters and in the world. And, and I, I, like I, I remember my my agent told me very early on in my career that epic fantasy it's it might be a small genre but it's a it's a resilient genre yeah it's right. because people just generally like it yep. and and it's it is weird to look at that success versus you know I've got friends who came out around the same time as I did with you know like science fiction that hit the New York Times bestseller list but nobody talks about that series or that book anymore, you know, eight years later. Yeah. But I, I, my own series still has a good backlist still selling really well. Yeah. That is the dream right there. The cool thing is too, like a big chunky book has the feeling to me of like a good season of television. Oh yeah. That's a good, it's not just like an episode. It's not just like a little mini series. It feels like a complete, like the rise and fall that you get from a good season of television, a really good book. Is that oh, that that's a good analogy. I like that. Oh man, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it, it's well rounded, and you know it's it's funny because I feel like uh, when you do a longer book, you can get away with a lot more. You can yeah. get away with meandering a bit. You can yeah. get away with you know you can get away with your characters doing absolutely weird things because you can stop and explain it. Yes, you know, as like long as you, can, you know why you're doing it and you can get it in that book, you're good. Yeah, yeah. You just have more time. Yeah, it's yeah. Comic writing. I, I've talked to a few people who have done comic writing and it to me, it feels so tiny. And so yes. like, 
It is like, to get tinier. Like it used to be what, 22, 24 pages. Now it's down to like 20. Oh man. Like, what do I do in 20 pages? You're like, right. I, well, there's a fight scene. You're like, well, there's three pages. You're like, oh no, no. <laughs> like you want to kind of go like to like Chris Claremont X-Men. You're like, what if I just write prose and then you can draw around it? Like it'll be people, <laughs> huge chunks of dialogue and you can kind of squeeze in some drawings. Like, yo, you can't do that anymore. Okay, all right. So Right, right. I need at least six thousand words to tell what I'm gonna tell. Yes. And then the other thing is like when you get into comic deals, like if you're gonna do whether an original series or whatever series or whatever, they're not gonna commit you to more than three, three or five issues. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I I know I'm sure you've read comic series, but like five issues is rarely enough for me to feel like I want to stop. Like if it's they're like candy, like you're like like next one, if I can do five issues in 10 minutes like so to have to like write only that and to try to tell a story that feels meaningful and impactful uh it's not in my uh wheelhouse now i mean obviously there's writers who do it and do it well but i am not yeah. containing a story to that sort of like narrow little space well and i remember even as a kid trying to get into comics and trying to read comics and saying wait this is over already yeah. like i started reading this nine minutes ago yeah. why is it over yeah. i it's like and then Right. And then, and then, you know, if I'm at the library, then I wander over to the epic fantasy section. Yeah. You're like, here's my deal. This is going to occupy me for a while. Yeah. 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 I want, yeah. There is a little tiny bit of my brain. That's like, I want my money's worth. Like I want, I want to spend the time in the world. Well, that's why they say people respond well to big books and bookstores because they like feel like it's an investment. Like it's not just like, I'm going to pick this up and it's going to be a plane ride and I've done it. Like that's a different kind of book. Like some people want to be like, I want to take this on an entire vacation and disappear into it. And uh, to me, that's amazing. And I, as a writer too, you know, um, and I'm sure you can totally relate to this. Like when you, to kind of go back to that whole, like producing one big book in 12 to 18 months uh, versus like a bunch of little ones over a period of time. Like I started out doing that, right? Like three, four books a year. And you learn very quickly that you are competing against yourself on bookshelf. Yeah. That a Barnes and Noble is not going to put all of your books on a bookshelf in 12 months. So they would much rather and are likelier to support in a bigger way the one book over 12 months than four books over 12 months. So, and you realize like, I'm just maybe fighting myself. Like I'm Spider-Man pointing at himself in the meme. Like it's you, it's you. And then you have to beat each other up because it's not uh, productive to do that. You're actually sort of maybe sandbagging yourself in the long run. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I think that's something that, you know, publishers will talk about that with authors, but I don't think that that's something that fans really realize a lot of right. because, you know, fans want the things they want the want next it. thing immediately. Yep. And, and I don't think they understand that, that, uh, generally that that's kind of, that's a balancing act that you kind yeah. of do with, with traditional publishing and with self-publishing, it's not nearly as big of a deal. No, you can kind of churn and burn with that. Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. churn and burn. Uh, but, but with traditional publishing and trying to get into physical bookstores, especially, man. Yes. Yeah. There's limited finite space. So it's hard to sort of crack that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can go into a bookstore and, uh, this was something I kind of learned really early on when my first book came out was, uh, I could walk into a Barnes and Noble in one part of down and see that they've got you know, four copies of my book. That's amazing. Yeah. And then I walk over, like I drive across town and go to a different Barnes and Noble and they don't have any. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until I kind of made friends with the manager of the Barnes and Noble that was closest to me. And, uh, and they had started selling quite a lot of my books that he explained to me that, that his Barnes and Noble actually like did a lot of science fiction. They just yeah. moved huge amounts of science fiction and fantasy. 
And uh, he said that the Barnes & Noble that I had gone to and been surprised by, he said, yeah, they have a single shelf. They don't sell. They practically don't sell anything. Don't bother trying to get a signing over there. It's just, that's not their audience. It's weird when you realize that different, especially with Barnes & Noble, that different ones are very different in terms of who is manager and who's Mm -hmm. regional manager and who that whole trickle down of uh, the, the audience. Like they, which I mean, I think it's good that they learn to speak to a certain audience, but also sometimes I think they cut off certain audiences by not uh, offering stuff. Though I know Barnes & Noble is doing some shifts and some changes now too. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I think I tend to get very sympathetic when, you know, because it's really easy to read a news article about, you know, Barnes & Noble stopped carrying this, you know, or whatever. I, I try to be really sympathetic with how complicated it is to run a massive business yes. that is trying to sell to a million different types of people. Yes, especially in an industry that is weird. <laughs> books are yeah. weird. It's not a, I mean, even down to the fact that like books, the whole remaindering process, like we order a number and then we send them back. And um, certainly as an author, that's weird. And I can't imagine what that's like to be the actual bookstore having to deal with that on that side of things. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a bizarre industry as a whole. It is. It's so weird. But then every time I get involved in like any kind of film or TV, I'm like, I, I'm like, oh, publishing is so nice. <laughs> yeah. so it's like a warm hug. Why did I ever? I love you, publishing. When I uh, when I first sold uh, the TV option for Promise of Blood, I uh, I I had a couple of meetings with the showrunner, um, and he and I kept thinking, okay, everyone has warned me that this is an awful experience. And I finally basically said that to him. I'm like, look, you're being super nice. Yeah. And you're like taking so much advice from me. What is going on? He's like, oh, I'm Canadian. <laughs> and it's, it's, and it's like, is. yeah, I'm, I'm Canadian and I don't really work in Hollywood. I work in a totally different ecosystem yeah. that is way nicer and way more casual and and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Like, even if this doesn't get made, at least I'll have had a nice experience. You guys should make more TV. I, right. I the, the thing I always say to people who they want to ask about the experiences of, you know, because a lot of people like don't view books as real until you have like a film or a TV deal, which is terrible yeah. because they're like, no, no, they don't actually make our books into movies. They just option them for a period of time, like get excited, but it's not actually happening. So I always yeah. tell people like with publishing that you know any deal you have any sort of you know you're putting the book out there it is always a no before it's a yes so you go through all of the no hoops and like that gatekeeper thing is real but it's a good thing because uh, at least to some degree because you kind of know when the gate is shut you're like well the gate is closed i can't get to the next gate but in hollywood everything is yes before it's no you go out there and they they want to be in the you business they love this this is great and it's just like you're just walking through open gate after open gate until that last one smacks shut and breaks your nose and you're just like oh oh i had my hopes up so much oh no oh god yeah yeah i i had a friend uh not that long ago kind of just you know, jokingly say, hey, um, you know, I, you should have what you should have with Promise of Blood and Powder Mage, what um, what The Expanse ended up getting. And I just couldn't stop laughing at that. I'm like, do you realize the alignment of stars? God, yeah. That gave us The Expanse. Yeah. And kept giving us The Expanse. Like it is it is a, a, almost a holy experience. We should build gods to, out, of, out, of, out of those two men. Uh, for being able to accomplish that uh, in that amount of time. It's amazing. Amazing yeah. that it happened. Well, and I can't even imagine the number of decision makers yes. that it had to end up saying yes. Yes. Even after they said no. Yeah. Like, it just, uh, the series of events is so improbable. So uh, improbable. I mean, ha- there's so many 
massive, best-selling, super successful authors who have never had anything on film or TV. Um, Because it's just, it's like a really, I mean, you're already taking, like, it's like I said, it's like with royalties, like you're already entering into a difficult experience with trying to get published. But then to like that, (laughs) just like it's a cattle shoot, man. Like you're getting into a narrow possible uh, uh, needle hole for thread to to actually be able to get something onto a screen somewhere is such a, a, a epic thing. Yeah, it's it's funny because like I'll I'll hear somebody say uh, like oh I can't believe that Game of Thrones fell apart in its last two seasons and my response is I can absolutely believe it. Yeah, like I can I'm I'm shocked that they made it that far with. Yeah, I'm exactly right. I'm <laughs> amazed. It it got we got what we got. Right. It's just the the complication of these churning industries is uh it's beyond it's beyond comprehension beyond comprehension there's so many people and like when when i was at the uh, sundance screenwriters festival and meeting these like massively epic wonderful screenwriters who have had deep careers but like when they actually talk about the films they've made it's like a tiny little peak of a iceberg and they talk about all the things they have written and produced and created story-wise that will never ever be available for you to see. Some of times they even film them. Like the guy, uh, Glenn Mazar, who was the showrunner for uh, Wanderers for a time, you know, he did the Dark Tower pilot for Stephen King. And like, I got to see it, but it's like, he's like, this will never air. No one will ever see this. So you might as well take a look at it and just, it's it's a point of trivia and curiosity at this point. I'm like, can you imagine writing something and committing yourself and all it is is a point of trivia or curiosity? Just a a thing that's like burying the yard with the other ones, boys. Like it's, that's it. Heartbreak. it's it is it's heartbreaking and nuts and and some people have made millions of dollars. They do, yeah, they, they do really well with that off of careers that never have been seen publicly. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's like a shadow career, and that's that is a that is a bizarre thing to me. It is. I can't imagine writing like, oh yeah, I have these twenty books uh, that I wrote that I got paid for that we developed. That there's a cover in a blurb in it. Oh, we didn't, we it couldn't get it to shelves. Like it's just not on shelves. So good luck. I, I, uh, my very first foreign language sale was uh French for promise of blood for the trilogy. Nice. And they, uh, and it was a really good sale. I, it was something like 20 grand for three books. It, it was a, as a really solid, uh, a really solid foreign sale. And then the first book came out. I think it sold 160 copies. Absolutely bombed. Yeah. And they came back to me and said, yeah, of course, we're not going to publish the rest of these. Yeah. And my public, my agent went back to them and said, well, yeah, but you're going to pay the rest of the money. Yeah. And, and so I ended up getting like 20 grand for 160 books that sold. Yeah. And I got to imagine that that's like, that's how their careers feel all the time. All the time. Yeah. It's so weird. It's like yelling into a void, just like, I, hello, please answer me. And no one answered. <laughs> no and then, and then eventually like, and then someday they'll get some a massive award winning thing. And then maybe nothing else will sell ever again. And that'll be it. That'll be it. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. I can't imagine that's again. It just makes me feel so cozy in publishing. I was like, <laughs> I feel so fortunate to be just writing humble little books. Like it's not, not a big deal, but everything gets there. It's okay. Like I feel safe. Here. Yeah. So, safe. <laughs> so um, really quickly, tell me a little bit about your authorial resolution. Oh, um, yeah, this year. Yeah. Uh, so every year I do something where I try to say, here's kind of a thing I'm going to uh, reach for um, in terms of a resolution for my writing for the year. 
Uh, and I know there's people who get salty about like, oh, but you don't have to do a resolution in January. I'm like, well, but I'm doing it. So too bad. Um, <laughs> and this year's was just sort of about finding the the joy in the process and finding something to really just love about it. Um, and I think with the pandemic, especially you kind of fall into a place where you're like, you know, you do the thing because you think it's going to be the publishing thing or like the publishable thing or the trendy thing, or this is, you're trying to hit a certain window, but the pandemic I think has been awful, but a good to remind people that like we are in a really tenuous state, uh, both as people and just as an industry. Publishing is very confusing right now. I don't know that publishing knows what it's doing. They're doing well financially. Books are selling. But um, having spoken to people inside the industry, there's a whole lot of like, we kind of can't peg what's coming. And like a lot of media outlets have lost um, their, their book staff in terms of reporting on books. And so it's like kind of hard to find room to even talk about books anymore outside of social media. So I think publishing is reeling. And I think writers are reeling too, just talking about how we, you know, entered this the pandemic and couldn't find a foothold to to write anything down. So uh, to me, it was like kind of to go back to basics. Like we all entered into this thing because we love some part of it, whether you love a character, you create characters or, or certain turns of phrase or prose or, you know, so there's something we dig about it. I think it's really important to hold on to that, like, like driftwood in the ocean. They're just like, I need to stay afloat. So I'm trying to figure out what I love about this thing. And if other writers can uh, find something they love about it too, I think that's um, of value. To them. I, uh, when I read that, I was, it actually really resonated with me because I, I have reached the point in my career where I'm really quite good at the mechanics of writing. Yeah. I know the mechanics of storytelling and creating characters and things like that, but there, it, it has created a secondary struggle for me where I find myself being so good at knowing how to put things together that I stop finding the fun in putting things together. Oh, I can see that. Which which translates to the page. Yeah. And and suddenly I have a lot of drama with that's that doesn't have enjoyable payoffs anymore. Yeah. And that was the first two drafts of the book that I have coming out this summer of was just this is really good mechanically and it just there's there's no place to pause and laugh about something there's no place to really dig your teeth into a moment of cool you know that kind of thing and it yeah and that's why you do that that's like right you come to the page you're like i want to mess around or like just have a moment where i think it's funny it's for me like and maybe if it's for me i always say that storytelling is kind of an exhortation against being alone like you're writing this story in your little cave and you're going to put it out into the world like as an echo and you kind of want the echo to be returned or you want someone else to to hear it and to say like not only have they heard the echo but they have responded to it like you put your little freak flag up and they're like they're flying the same flag and you're like oh my god i am not an entirely alone person there are other people out there who are like me and will appreciate that i'm sending this out there oh man that's that is so true yeah i uh it, it, it's 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 just it's I think it's a struggle when you are balancing the this is the thing that makes money yeah I need to do it well as a professional right. versus that sort of um, childlike feeling of wonder yeah. that you really have when you first get into writing yes and the chaos of like not knowing what you're doing like I when I wrote Wanderers I abandoned um, a process I had had for so many books. Um, I had always outlined. I had to outline books. Like it was a, back to that screenwriter when he told me to outline. Like I took that to heart, and I learned that I was a pantser by heart, but a plotter by necessity. I needed to 
have a story figured out before I really started to write it. And Wanderers, arguably my plottiest, most like epic mechanical book, like there's a lot going on and it all needs to plug together. I didn't outline a word of it. I uh, wrote a couple chapters in advance and then I just sort of ran into it. I just like, <laughs> I fled into the wild of the book and uh, I did the same with Book of Accidents and it became, because I had broken my process a little bit and sort of learned that I, in the best way possible, I don't know how to write books. Like I know the mechanical side. I know how to move the stuff together and I understand the flow of narrative, uh, but like kind of breaking apart my expectations for what I can and should do in a story helped me find that um, sort of weird, chaotic abandon uh, that was necessary to, to finish it. I, uh, I probably about six months ago, I even tweeted, I kind of tweeted the first, I think six or seven chapters. I was rereading Promise of Blood and I, I tweeted about the things I would have done differently now. Yeah. And uh, there was a point at which I realized that I would have done so many things more competently that I would have lost the uh, sense of kind of, uh, I, I would have lost the enthusiasm that Promise of Blood really got its, like, that. that's where it got its readership from. Yeah, right. Was this enthusiasm of entering this new fantasy world. Yes. And I, I would have absolutely butchered it. And it probably would have bombed. It's weird, isn't it? Sort of be writers at this, like 10 years deep into a career and to kind of renegotiate with yourself how you do this thing again. And yeah. finding, and that's kind of what that resolution was about was in some ways sort of renegotiating back to the purest, uh, simplest thing you can do, which is finding that which you kind of love about it. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was very cool, which is why I asked you about it. Um, it was... Uh, it just it hit a chord with me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right. That's the goal. Is if it, if it, again, an exhortation against not being alone. If, if one person finds it useful, that's amazing. Um, so I ha I like to finish these uh, podcasts up by asking every guest, yeah. what's the last thing you ate that blew your mind? Oh, God. The last thing I ate that blew my mind. I um, made – I don't uh, deep fry in my house very often. In fact, I'm actually mi mildly scared of deep frying things because it's like – uh, you know, it's just one of the, at first it's a messy kind of experience, but you're also like, I'm going to blow myself up. I'm just that person. I'm definitely going to catch fire. So, yeah. uh, but I, I, you know, I have, um, a Le Creuset, uh, uh, pot and I have the splatter guard. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. I, I want to make chicken sandwiches because I'm not going out into the world getting good chicken sandwiches. And I want to do a great like Korean glaze on it. So, um, I found a recipe. Joshua Weissman, uh, does a good recipe for largely it's just potato starch and flour. Uh, so there's no batter. It's just dipping the chicken thighs in that. And then I uh, deep fried it and put it in this like kind of gochujangy sort of spicy sauce. And it was, uh, they were the best chicken sandwiches I have ever had. And I made them. I was like, damn, damn, my family, would, like, I knew it, my family was loving it because they weren't talking at all. They were just like, ah. like, yes, I have fed people and myself. So that blew, that blew my mind. I had like just, all I put on it was just pickles and iceberg lettuce. And it was like on a potato, like a Martin's potato roll. Ah, oh, that ooh. sounds amazing. So oh, good. I, I love a good chicken sandwich so much. It is one of my favorite things. Yeah. And chicken thighs are such an underrated, you gotta, the chicken thighs are a magical piece of chicken. I smoke chicken thighs a lot ooh. and they, they turn out so dang good it's like it's like how is this a buck 99 a pound yeah like seriously. they you you smoke like five pounds of chicken thighs shred them all up and then freeze them in little baggies and use use it for anything you use it for sandwiches nachos whatever oh my god you want chicken noodle soup it's amazing oh i've never tried that but i will that sounds amazing yeah smoked chicken and noodle soup is good that do that well what do you use for a smoker do you have like a, 
a fancy one or do you kind of go? I, yeah, I've got a, I've got a camp chef. Okay. It's just a little pallet smoker, like yeah. kind of the, uh, you know, not, not the tiniest, but yeah. not a big one either. Um, and I think I've had it for five years now Nice. and I just, I love it. I, I think, uh, I think it was like 550 bucks and yeah. we had, we had moved in like six months previous and I told my wife, okay, I really want a smoker. <laughs> and she kind of was rolling her eyes and she's like, okay, well, you know, your books are doing well. What treat yourself, whatever. And she, the first bite that she ate of something I smoked <laughs> on there, she goes, yeah, this was a really good investment. This was a good investment. Yeah. Nice. I, I love when those investments pay off. I have um, uh, an uni pizza oven. I, I was going to ask you about that. Because mm, I... That works. I, I, oh, that sounds amazing. It makes pizza in a blink of an eye, and it is so good. I'm still filling I, with like the right dough, but it's... Ooh, yeah. Well, I I, uh, I got really good in 2020. I started making a, a deep dish pizza oh. that I got quite good at. Yeah. Um, and it was very tasty. And I don't even remember what it was. I think I started kind of dieting. I was trying to like eat less and stuff like that. And so I just stopped making it. Yeah. Um, but I saw a uh, photo on your Instagram of a pizza you had made. I don't know. Was it a couple weeks ago? Uh, maybe, maybe longer. Uh, probably even longer, sadly, because I haven't had it out for maybe a month or two. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it it looked like the pizza that I wanted to eat with the thick pepperoni that's a bit curled and yes. blackened on yeah. the sides, and that uh-huh. thick cheese that's oh man. And he got that like kind of just enough char on the crust to yeah yeah. Oh, I, I love that. You know, when he does it, and it's like literally ninety seconds. Oh jeez. He gives it like nine hundred degrees. I mean, it's the, the hottest. And but you get the, the amazing thing about it is at nine hundred degrees, I can put my hands around it and I'm not like on fire. Like I'm like, oh, I can just touch it. Like I shouldn't be able to touch a 900 degree box, but it's all contained in that space. It's so well insulated. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. That, that I don't know that, that after seeing that, after seeing what it produced, I'm that maybe go, may, might go on my list of toys for the future. Worth it. Worth it. Uh, I love it. Yeah. So fantastic. That was author Chuck Wendig. Thanks again to Chuck for taking the time to chat. You can find links to his website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Glenn with an extra N, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,